you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. Uh, Today we're going to be reading John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Nath. Good morning, City on a Hill. How are we doing? Good to be with you. Thanks so much for joining us. If we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name's Nick, and today I get the privilege of opening up this brand new series, The Seven Signs of Jesus. Uh, Jesus did a lot of miracles in his time on earth, uh, but one of his closest friends, John, who wrote this book, John, he chose to focus in on, on seven of them. He, he chose to, to point to, to seven in particular signs, seven miracles that Jesus did to pull out of them what we might learn about who Jesus is. Uh, so we're going to look, on, we're gonna look uh, as Pat said, at each of these seven, uh, because we now just have... I think it's just eight weeks to Christmas. Can you believe it? Get the shopping done, eight weeks to Christmas, and we're going to do seven signs until we get to Christmas. Uh, Just before we dive in uh, about this series, every Sunday is a great Sunday to invite non-Christian friends to church. This series in particular, an extra special series to invite non-Christians to church because we're going to explore who these signs say Jesus is together. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to dive in to this first sign. So please pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you uh, that you have not left us alone, but you have uh, revealed yourself to us. You've done it in creation. You've done it through your word. You've done it in the person of Jesus in the flesh. And through him, you've done it in these signs. Lord, would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that understand what you are trying to say to us through what you had Jesus come and do while he was with us on earth. Come and move by your spirit, we pray, and help make Jesus as big and as beautiful as he really is to us in this moment this morning. It's in Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, Amen. I thought I'd start by saying it is an important time of year for the year 12s amongst us. We've got a handful of uh, VCE students in our uh, church uh, because it is exam time, uh, and so if you're here in year 12, we're with you. Uh, and you should add to your prayer list the VCE students in our church. 
Uh, and this time of year, thinking about VCE throws me back. Uh, my favourite subject when I was in VCE in year 12 was further maths. Uh, I was a further maths kind of guy. Uh, that's, that, that's what they call kind of like the more simple mathematics. Uh, because when maths stays numbers, it's, it's maths, it's good. But when maths turns into letters, it's speaking in tongues. And I do not have the gift of interpretation. And so I was a further maths kid. And one of the reasons I love further maths also was because uh, you, you get to do kind of real maths, like stats with numbers and, and all that kind of thing. And one of the reasons I love sport and thinking about uh, kind of averages and statistics and all that, I just love thinking about those kinds of real number maths. Uh, in fact, one of the, the things that I'm looking forward to most, and here I'm, I'm moving away from the Bible. This is not in the Bible. Uh, but I hope that when we get to enjoy eternity with Jesus, when we walk in to the new heavens and the new earth, I hope that there is a library somewhere, and in that library there is an, a room that's the archives. And in those archives, I hope to be able to see all the stats of my life. I would love to know, you know, how far have I walked? Uh, how many people did I meet? How many donuts did I consume? I'd just love to know the stats, the lifetime statistics of what I uh, accomplished on earth. Uh, one stat that I often think about is I want to know who were those people that I was so close to in uh, numerous points in my life and never actually got to meet. You just imagine that there was probably someone that when I was five years old, we were at the MCG together. And then a few years after that, we were catching the tram together. And then in the teens, we were kind of past each other at Doncaster Shopping Town sometime. And then maybe a couple of years ago, I almost crashed into them at Burwood One shop, you know, car park. You just imagine there's probably some person out there that just dozens and dozens of times we've been so close uh, and yet so far. And that came to my mind this week because I heard the remarkable story uh, of uh, this couple uh, who had been married and, and after being married for 11 years, discovered a photo of themselves in the same place, uh, 11, actually 11 years before they had met. Uh, Zhu and her now husband Yi, they were photographed together at this tourist attraction in Qingdao, China in the year 2000, and then years later, they were married in 2011, and they went through old photos because they wanted to check that the mum, Zhu, uh, her resemblance with her, her daughters, her children, and they found these two photos where the husband is in the background posing uh, in front of this tourist attraction, uh, and it is an incredible story. And you imagine how many times has that happened to us? It is more than a story, it is a sign. And I want to start our series that way because I want to suggest to you that we actually do have somebody in all of our lives who we have been so close, who's been in the background of our lives, uh, influencing us, in encountering us, uh, perhaps. Uh, and that person is a, a relatively young Israeli man from 2,000 years ago named Jesus of Nazareth, uh, that he has been in the, the, the background of our lives, heard about the most influential, incredibly influential in our lives, and yet perhaps we have never stopped to meet Him. Never stopped to meet Him personally. Jesus' impact upon our world is immeasurable. What you and I take for granted as modern Western thinking has evolved from the teachings of Jesus. And we see that when we compare our culture to others, the, the cultures shaped by the message of Jesus have now become what we assume to be, well, that's just, that's just common sense. But do we know Jesus as He is? Have we considered the real Jesus of the Bible? Have we looked at who Jesus showed Himself to be and have we personally stopped 
to meet this Jesus. This is what we're going to do uh, over these next seven weeks as we look at these seven signs. So just pause, stop, and meet the real Jesus. And so today we're going to start talking about uh, who he is by going straight to the source, what we had read out for us, the opening miracle in the book of John. We're going to stay in John for all of the seven weeks so that we can glean who this Jesus is. Uh, he's come close to us. He's, he's left his mark on the world. Uh, so we want to give him the respect uh, of doing that by, by working out what, what was that mark. What has Jesus come to reveal about himself to us? And so we're going to look at John. And John tells us at the end of the book of John. So we might get through our series and then miss it at the end. So I want to bring it up at the start. He tells us at the end of the book of John why he chose these particular seven to tell us. Listen to what he says in John chapter 20. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We're going to come back to that purpose statement again and again and again, because John is telling us why he chose the seven to put in this particular book, because he wants to help us see that, that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Son of God, and that you can have life in his name. And so we're going to turn to the first sign today. But as we do, let's keep that purpose in our minds. If you are here and you are wrestling with who Jesus is and what that might mean for your life, or if you're here and you, you kind of have landed on who Jesus is and yet haven't yet quite untethered, yet worked out, what does that mean for my life? Welcome to the seven signs of Jesus. This is why they exist. And so we're going to walk through chapter 2, uh, John chapter 2, verse 1 to 11, uh, the passage that was just read out for us. We're going to uh, walk on through it and I'll stop at different points to kind of unpack what's really being said here. And then we're going to land on what is the big idea of this sign? What is this sign in particular pointing to? So do have your Bibles with me. It's good to go through a passage together. All the words will be on the screen. John chapter 2, verse 1, says this, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Let me, let me stop there, because already there is something very significant that we won't want to bypass here in the text. John tells us the day. He tells us the day when this miracle happened. He tells us, did you see it? It was the, what day? The third day. Now, here in the third day, uh, we as, as post-resurrection Christians, we might think, oh, well, he, he might be given a kind of tip of the hat to what's to come at the end of the book. We know how the story ends. Well, I don't think he's talking about that. I think he's talking about something else that is also significant. If we'd read the first chapter of the book of John, which John might expect us to do, because we've just started the second chapter. If we'd read the first chapter of the book of John, we'd know that, that John tied the coming of Jesus to the very beginning of the universe. He, he took out a, a kind of Genesis 1-1, and he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he unpacks a little bit more about Jesus and his cousin, John the Baptist. And then he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's trying to tell us that, hey, Jesus, he's the one who was actually there at the beginning of everything. The beginning of creation itself. And in Genesis 1, we know that when that was written, it goes through a series of days, doesn't it? To tell us about how God created the world. And here in John... Notice what he does, because after linking it in John 1 with Genesis, we read him start to unpack the beginnings of Jesus' ministry here. 
And he tells us about his cousin, John the Baptist, who had this, this moment where he announced to his disciples, hey, there's someone who's coming, whom I'm unworthy to untie his sandals. He's going to be the Christ. He's going to be the Lord. And then John says something peculiar. He words it peculiarly. In verse 29 of chapter 1, he then says, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the first day was when John the Baptist announced, hey, there's someone coming. John now has told us the next day, so we're on to the second day. And then if we skip down to verse 35, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked and Jesus walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. So we're now on to the third day. And then after that, in verse 43, it says, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And so he meets some of his friends. He focuses now on, on Jesus. So we're now on to the, the fourth day. And then we get to the wedding. John chapter 2, verse 1. It takes place on the third day. And so we've gone from the fourth day to three days after the fourth day. It's the fifth day, the sixth day. We're now on the seventh day. The seventh day that John wants to highlight in the ministry of Jesus. Seven days that it took to create. And then what happened on the seventh day? It was the day of rest. And so John takes us back to the beginning to point out that just as he was back then, Jesus is about to do something massive. Jesus is about to do something creative. Jesus is about to do something so meaningful that we should have in our minds as we are about to read it, just exactly what happened when all things came to exist. So let's dive back in. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So they're at a wedding. We know that Jesus is often... It's recorded in his ministry. He's often in this region of, of Cana in Galilee. Uh, perhaps he had a family attachment to the area. We know that his mum is often in that region as well. And so maybe this wedding is a wedding of a family member or a close friend. That seems likely because we hear at the very top that, that Mary has some responsibility for the catering. She's worried that the wine has run out. And that the wine has run out is a big deal. More than you and I would know. If we were at a wedding today and the bar tab ran out, it would be embarrassing. If the bar itself ran out of wine, it would be embarrassing. But when you, that happens in, a, in an honor-shame culture, where, where your whole family reputation is tied to good hospitality, it is particularly shameful for the wine to run out. There is evidence that actually back then, it would lead to lawsuits from the bride's family to the groom's family if the groom was not responsible enough to handle the wine. And so Jesus responds to his mum who's worried about this. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now Jesus isn't being particularly rude there, but he is being blunt. And Jesus is often blunt in uh, the biographies of Jesus with his family. And we think this is perhaps a, another case where his mum is being a bit presumptuous. His mum is, is trying to leverage her biological attachment, her, her special status that she has with Jesus, because she knows, hey, Jesus could do things at the drop of a hat. Jesus could, could say things. Jesus, Jesus, he's, she's seen enough. She's, she has in her memory all that happened at Christmas, all that happened of, of hear, hearing that this guy is going to be special. I'm sure she's probably seen a little bit of that, a little bit of that kind of privately for the last 30 years. She wants to lean in on that in a moment of desperation and ask Jesus for some help here. And yet Jesus 
pushes back. No one can come to God. No one can come to Jesus presuming upon some kind of special attachment to Him, but only by trusting in His own authority, power, and compassion. It's also bad timing. Jesus says that His hour has not yet come. It's a strange phrase, but it's a common phrase. It's a phrase that He uses a lot. He means that it's not yet the time for Him to do things public. If He goes too soon, giving these public signs, He's going to blow up the the bubble of messianic expectation. Too soon, and the crowds will form around Him too early. When the crowds form around Him too early, the, the religious establishment is going to get suspicious too soon. And they'll start to burst that bubble prematurely. We know in Jesus' life that He was very intentional and strategic about the things that He did, where He was. He was very intentional about His life, but we also here read that He's also very intentional about His death. His death was planned. His death was preordained. Jesus had come to earth on a mission, in part, to die in our place for us. But when that death involves dying at the hands of the religious establishment and sinful men, you've got to steward that moment carefully. You've got to make sure that happens at the right time after He's done all that He needed to accomplish. And so He says that His hour for His fame and His acclaim and ultimately for His death, it has not yet come. And so He says, shh, mum. Don't put that on me just yet. Then we read the next verse. And it seems that Mary's presumption has turned to faith because she turns away from Jesus and turns to the servants. It says, His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Now, if you need a life verse, here is a life verse for you. Do whatever he tells you. We just spent eight weeks in the book of Proverbs, all their kind of pithy one-liners, full of wisdom. Here is wisdom that eclipses them all. Do whatever He tells you. Some of you right now, you're wrestling with things in in your life. You've got that kind of a fork in the road experience. What are you going to do next? Do whatever He tells you. Very good wisdom. Verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's almost 200 litres of water here in these jars. But it's not just water. These large jars were essentially religious bathroom basins uh, used for the Jews to purify themselves, wash their hands before and after meals. And in this case, it reminds us of the world that we are reading into right now, the world that this miracle would take place in. It wasn't there that these jars weren't there because they were particularly concerned about germs or or COVID. No, it was there because these were symbolic and actually were used in in ritualistic attempts to be pure. A world where at regular points people would make sacrifices, people would fast, people would wash. This was a system that that God Himself had, had initiated for these people. But he'd done so, so that they might see through this regular habit of having to to wash and and be purified, that they needed something deeper that would last. They needed to be made pure. They needed an ultimate sacrifice. They needed the inner washing of a new heart. And yet at this time, people had bought into the system, but forgot the substance behind it. Now we get 
to the miracle. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And so here we have the miracle. And the miracle is, is, is Jesus thinks it to happen and it happens. We don't have here any, any recorded word. Jesus didn't apparently go up to the jars and kind of rub them the right way. No, Jesus simply willed something to happen and the, the chemical structure or compound that was water became the chemical structure and compound that was now wine. And not just any wine. That potential shame of running out of wine has been lavishly replaced with an abundance, an overflow of the best, choicest wine. Now, in case we're thinking here that, that Jesus is kind of divinely orchestrating a massive booze fest, uh, it is worth knowing that the, the amount of wine was there uh, because of perhaps the length of the wedding, but also because obviously the size of the jars. But also the strength of the wine back then was a little bit different than what you or I might be used to. This wasn't grape juice, sorry Baptists, but it also was diluted wine, probably the strength of what you or I today might uh, experience with a light beer. Regardless of that, Jesus has purposefully willed and miraculously made it happen. He's kept the party going. He has, he's, he's turned up the joy. He's turned up the life. He has turned up the blessing from, from apparently this family to all their wedding guests by turning this water into wine. And so John finishes in verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so who knows in the moment how many people realized what had happened, the servants had obviously realized, the disciples had obviously realized. We'll see next week that soon many more people would realize what happened. God's glory on display in Jesus turning this water into wine. So there's the sign that we have. There's the, the miracle that we have. But signs exist to point us to something. And so what is it that this sign tells us? What does it point us to? Let's talk about what this miracle shows us. Here's the big idea. Jesus offers us a new kind of life. Jesus offers you a new kind of life. Of life. Let's summarize what John is telling us by the way he unpacked this miracle for us. He is telling us that God in the flesh, on the seventh day, went to a significant social celebration, a wedding, and ensured that the public shame of lack was lavishly replaced to incredible excess by turning the source of religious ritual of purification into barrels that held excellent wine and thus multiplied the joy and the celebration and the blessing of the event to all that were there. That is the miracle. Now, let's double-click into that and talk more about that. I might have shared this story from my own life before, but it's worth retelling. I remember uh, a moment, a day where I was out uh, on the golf course with my best mate, 
and it was a beautiful spring day. The sky was a perfect blue. The grass had just been cut. We had unlimited golf until the sun went down. We had a golf cart. We were on holiday. You couldn't get better than this. You cannot ask for a more picturesque, a more enjoyable moment. And it was so enjoyable. One of those moments that you kind of, you sit back and you think, this is the life. And we did exactly that. Not only did we think it to ourselves, we started verbalizing that to one another. How good is this? And in fact, as we riffed on how good of an experience we were having in that, on that afternoon, we also speculated, man, are you sure that we aren't sinning? Something must be wrong. We must be compromising in some way because this just feels too good. And that riff, that thought, what revealed, didn't it, an unhealthy assumption. The assumption being that God isn't happy with us enjoying anything. We must be compromising here because we're enjoying it. We must somehow be doing something that is ticking God off because we're having such a good time. Maybe Satan is somewhere behind the scenes here, kind of whispering to us to have us be sinning in some way because God wouldn't want us to enjoy this. Now, what's alarming about that thought process is that it's actually the same assumption and the worldview that the serpent used at the very beginning, tempting our first parents in the garden. Because if you remember, God had Adam and Eve in a garden, not a desert, in a garden, full of trees, of fruits, of color, of life, of growth. And he told them, hey, there's just one tree in this whole forest There is just one tree that I want you to stay away from. And I want you to stay away from that tree because it it will hurt you. It wasn't that that was the funnest tree. It wasn't that that tree was incredible. It was the harmful tree that he wanted them to stay away from. And then the serpent comes along and says, well, actually, God knows that when you eat from that one tree, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God. And ever since then, we've seen the same logic play out in all of humanity, that a true life, a better life, a life with eyes wide open, well, that can only happen away from the God of the Bible. In fact, he's he's out to keep that from you. He's out to, to kind of make sure that you don't touch the better trees. You don't touch the fun trees, the trees that will open your eyes. And help you experience true, real life. God's actually just there because he wants to to limit your joy. And so in our own day, there's that narrative, isn't there, about about following the God of the Bible. That narrative about the Christian life. You know, those Christians, they're just out there to stop you from having sex. And they're just there because they don't want you to be rich. Rather, they just want you to submit to a rigorous religious regime. Deny yourself. I want you to lose all your friends because you should be looking down on everybody else in judgment. And so we think, well, if we want to follow what we kind of feel intrinsically like we should, you know, pursue our happiness, pursue our, our freedom, we can either follow that or we could pursue God's way of grumpiness and restriction. And there's evidence in our world that that, that narrative is fake news, that that narrative isn't actually how it's presented to us. You might have heard uh, this week 
one of the icons of my generation of television, Chandler Bing, Matthew Perry, passed away last weekend. And in the fallout, I was reading some of the quotes from his uh, autobiography that was recently released just, just in the last couple of years. Uh, and so many of them were striking that it led me to, to download the book and listen to it myself. Uh, and in the, the story of his life, Perry uh, details childhood trauma, a sense of detachment from his parents that led to subsequent alcoholism and drug use that started when he was 14 and continued for much of his life. And he identifies how, how much of that was in order to pursue this, this life that he thought he would love, this life where he thought that he would finally be, be found, this life where he, he would be loved and accepted for who he was that he didn't experience when he was a kid. And he thought that fame was the answer. There's this one uh, chilling quote, this, this experience that he details that he had uh, in his apartment when he was trying to make the most of his career in Los Angeles. He said this, I found myself getting to my knees, closing my eyes and praying, I'd never done this before. God, you can do whatever you want with me. Just please make me famous. Three weeks later, I got cast in Friends, and God, God has certainly kept his side of the bargain. But the Almighty, being the Almighty, had not forgotten the first part of that prayer as well. Now, all these years later, I'm certain that I got famous, so I would not waste my entire life trying to get famous. You have to get famous to know that it's not the answer. You have to get famous to know that it's not the answer. See, throughout the book, Perry's life illustrates to us that the, the script that the world writes for us turns out to not lead to what it says it will lead to. The, the invitation to have your eyes opened turns out that you actually become blind. True happiness and true freedom isn't found in, in being our own scriptwriter, paving our own way making ourselves. Rather, true happiness and freedom is found in, in finding the script that we were made for, in living the kind of life that we were designed for. And in the same way, God's vision for our lives isn't to, to limit our joy, but rather to maximize our joy by having us be found in Him. Sin isn't called sin because it's fun and God wants to keep us from that. Sin is called sin because it's harmful and God wants our happiness and our joy and what's best for us. Opposite to the narrative that we're often sold or what we're whispered to in our hearts. In the book of Isaiah, God details uh, what He's going to do to upend the old order of, of brokenness, suffering, sin, dissatisfaction in our world. He says this in Isaiah 25, He paints, paints a vision. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people will, he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken." So written 600 years before Jesus would come in the flesh, Isaiah here pictures this, this coming day of joy, of feasting, of medium rare steaks, where tears are going to be wiped, death are going to be no more, and it's going to be replaced with well-aged wine. And so it's fitting then that, that we turn to, to look at this miracle that we're looking at today. 
that we should read this not as just a real historical event in human history, as it actually was. But also, Jesus is doing this as a living parable to show us that His whole life's mission is to replace the the dryness, the barrenness, the search, the dissatisfaction of our broken experience with a new order that He is bringing in of life, of blessing, of grace, of mercy, of feasting. And at the heart of that new order, at the heart of that new life that Jesus wants to bring into the world, is the method of how He went about this miracle itself. The purification jars that people came back to again and again to rewash, to re-cleanse, to re-purify themselves just for a temporary time as they worked toward acceptance before God. It's fitting that Jesus uses them to turn them into this abundant, excellent wine, as if to say, hey, if you want cleansing, you can now find that in me. If you want purity, look no further than me. If you want to be accepted before God as you are, here's why I've come. This is what will mark his life. This is what will mark Jesus' time. This is what will mark his hour. And so this first sign points us to Jesus' offer to the world that you can find fullness of life in Him through forgiveness of sins. Jesus' offer to the world isn't isn't more religious ritual, not more rights to add to your life, but an offer to step off the treadmill of constantly searching for more, constantly working toward a more pure, moral life. You can step off that and step into true life, a life of being loved, a life of being accepted, a life of being forgiven a life of being found and attached to the God who made you and the God who knows how you should live life and do it best. The book of Hebrews uh, speaks to this. It speaks to to the old order of of, of washings and sacrifices and regulations around food and, and drink. And then it says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of His this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, Jesus' hour had not yet come, but this miracle here points to that hour that day where Jesus would lay down His life in death, His perfect life, His pure life in death for your life and for mine, our imperfect, our impure lives, so that we might be forgiven and that we might be reconciled to Him once for all and we might, through that, step into fullness of life with Him. And so that whisper that we hear, That true life can only be found apart from God. That search that we have, whether it's fame or money or relationships or power or influence or comfort or peace. Jesus' death frees us from that perpetual search and that perpetual angst, 
frees us from these, these systems and instead means that you and I can step into a better life, a better kind of life with Him at the helm. So on the seventh day, the day of rest, Jesus didn't only turn water into wine, but He also signaled the turn from the old order into the new, from the pursuit of true life into the actual having of it, from barrenness and drought into blessing and feasting, from perpetual religiosity into true relationship, from the hounding of guilt that we might feel to the spiritual rest, from working for our assurance to finally the freedom of having it, from just the the, the mere hope of one day perhaps maybe potentially we'll be forgiven to enjoying that you can know in this moment, in Jesus, you have it. And from waiting for a Messiah to come, to Him now announcing, He has now come. And so you can know this, this kind of life with Jesus by coming and putting your trust in Him, by seeing that, that Jesus' life and Jesus' death in particular, it, it happened in your place for you. It happened as a, as a gift to replace the life that you have failed to live well with Jesus' life that's been lived perfectly. As poetic and as, as beautiful as this moment was, with all of its, its links to the old and its pointers to what Jesus was doing through it, actually when we step into that life, when we come to put our trust in Jesus, we don't just get to, to look back at all the significance of what Jesus did, we get to look forward. Also, to to what Jesus will do. Because when we come to put our trust in Jesus, we we also get an invitation to a wedding. We get an invitation to to a wedding where Jesus, the groom, is going to marry his bride, the church. And we're going to sit around feasting and enjoying. We're going to see the culmination of what Jesus did here in this miracle. We're going to enter into glory. And in that day, and at that wedding, normal human life and your experience for every day from then on is going to be one marked by joy, by feasting, by true life, by blessing at a wedding with Jesus. And we're going to have a a foretaste of that moment uh, by sharing in communion together this morning. The night that, that Jesus was betrayed, he, he drank wine with his disciples. But he said, this is going to be the last time that we get to drink wine together before we drink it in the new heavens and the new earth at that eternal wedding feast. And so every time we take it now, we look back to the day where, where Jesus laid down his life for us, back to that night which started Jesus' sacrifice in our place. But also we look forward to this coming feast where Jesus will be alive and well, ruling and reigning, and He's going to cheers to us and to eternity. And so the meal that we're going to share in a moment, it, it keeps us to that day. The, the promise is that it's, it provides spiritual nourishment to us to keep on trusting Jesus until we see Him face to face. And so in a moment, the, the, the plate's going to be passed around, uh, but it doesn't make sense to take it unless you are trusting in Jesus. So if you're not here, if you're here yet to trust in Jesus, do let it uh, pass you by and just perhaps observe what we're here to do. 
But as we do partake it, I want us to, to apply the big message here of this miracle to us. I'm conscious that, that some of us here are trusting in Jesus, and yet we're still marked by living. Our, our life with Jesus is marked by the old order. Perhaps we're here and, and we're still walking and thinking and, and, and talking in patterns marked by the, the dryness and, and the barrenness that Jesus has come to replace. Perhaps we create our own jars of purification and we, and we have these certain things and habits and rites and rituals that we perform to, to cleanse our consciences and our performative mindsets. Jesus tells us that, hey, we're going to a wedding. Rejoice. And yet perhaps we're sitting at that wedding full of negativity, judgment, cynicism, drudgery, so insecure about God's love for us, so insecure about what other people think about us, that our life is, is riddled with anxiety. And what if? Perhaps we're here and we, we focus so much on our responsibility toward God and feel like we never tick the boxes that we want to tick to think that we're doing well in that, rather than leaning back into the experience of freedom and joy and acceptance and blessing and forgiveness that we already have in Jesus because of what He's done for us. We're going to land the plane here, and, but if, if, if that's you, if, if what I've just described, you feel like that marks a bit about your Christian life right now, I want to pray particularly for you. I want to pray for us, that we would be people marked by the kind of life Jesus is calling us to step into here with Him in this miracle. And so as I pray now, I'm just going to ask that if, if that's you and you want me to pray for you, would you just raise your hand uh, as I'm about to pray? So let's close our eyes, bow our heads, and if you want me to pray for you, would you raise your hand? We're about to sing in a moment. Thank you for doing that. But if you want me to pray that you would be released from the spirit of the old, that you might step into this, this new kind of life with Jesus marked by this miracle, a life of joy and peace in believing, Paul says in the book of Romans, with confidence and boldness and blessing, just go on and put up your hand right now. Awesome. Thank you. Let me pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you uh, have loved us even before we knew that we needed your love. We thank you for the ways that you have marked out for us a life with you of joy, peace, your blessing. You've done that even in the midst of our uh, ignoring you, rejection of you, running away from you toward other things, thinking that those things would be the things that satisfy us. Lord, we thank you that even in the midst of doing that, you, you hunt us down, you, you run after us, you pursue us because of your love for us. Lord, you see us at a distance from you, facing the other way, and yet you come to us and call us back to yourself. And we thank you, Lord, for this particular miracle where Jesus steps into a moment of lack, a moment of shame, and replaces it, Lord, with his glory, with his grace, with his blessing, and with his joy. Lord, we pray, pray particularly for people in our church, Lord, would you replace 
that, that, that spirit of, of going through that mo- the motions, to replace that, that spirit of, of drudgery, the spirit of constant self-remembrance and having our, our own performance in front of our minds, that spirit of cynicism and, and judgment, the spirit of keeping everyone else's performance before us. Lord, would you replace that by having our identity line up with who you're calling us to be through this miracle? Having our identity line up with what you've done for us already. May we be marked not by what we are failing to do right now, but may we repent of that and leave it at the foot of the cross. And rather, would we be marked by what you have done for us already? Holy Spirit, would you come and convict us of our righteousness how we have it in you not in our own strength not in our own performance but in yours in our place for us Lord would you convict us of our adoption as your sons and your daughters would you convict us of the ways that nothing can get in the way of your love for us would you convict us of the the power of your cross where you have broken into the world and done something historically and for the future for each one of us in our lives that is more significant, more influential over us than anything we have failed to do and even anything we are doing right now. Would you overwhelm us with the power of your grace and the power of what you have done for us? And would you help us step in now uh, to the spirit of, of, of this wedding that you had continue, that you had and you poured life, and you poured blessing, and you poured feasting into it, Lord, would you pour that into our lives? Would we know every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ, and would we walk in it, we pray, with confidence and with boldness, knowing your love for us. Be with us, I pray. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. May we walk as your people in this world. It's in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.